Well, here it is once again. It's time for Inside EMS. I want to thank you for joining us. I am very excited that you are here. Pulsara is the proud sponsor of this episode of the Inside EMS podcast. Learn how you can create a robust community paramedicine program at www.pulsara.com slash EMS. And here he is, the man that you really want to hear from, Kelly Grayson. KG, what's going on? Oh, man, I'm, I'm suffering. <laughs> I no, hate to I, be a complainer, but I'm complaining. I'm, oh, you, uh, you just started talking, and I'm starting to suffer. What's going on down there? I, oh, I don't know, man. I'm falling apart. Uh, I've, got a, I've got a cervical radiculopathy. Uh, otherwise, I was a... <laughs> well, I think it's ridiculous, all right. Uh, I've got a pinched nerve in my neck, and uh, for the last week, I have slept very little i can't lie down and sleep at all uh in the last four or five days i've uh i've slept in a chair actually it's been going on longer than a week but uh i'm getting you know i'm getting medication for it i saw my saw my physician who put me on a course of corticosteroids and muscle relaxers and and i'm taking boatloads of nsaids uh giving my liver a workout and i've got some some stronger uh, medicine for breakthrough pain. So, uh, between the lack of sleep and, and, uh, the, uh, pain meds, um, I'm, uh, my cognitive, uh, decline has been quite precipitous. I know what it feels like to think like you, uh, <laughs> but it's just, oh man, it's horrific. And, and, and my, my dodgy knee is, is kicking in. I'm, I'm about to be one of those old men who just, you know, shakes his fist at the clouds and complains about everything, but it's, it's just hadn't been a good week. So what you're saying basically is you're too young to be this old. Yes, I am too young to be this old. And I, you know, I've never, I played football in, in high school, uh, until my, uh, my knees, I started having some growth problems with my, with my knees, Osgood Slatter's disease and, and had to drop out of competitive sports. Not that I was really good at it anyway. I wasn't athletically gifted. I just had good field sense, but, um, uh, never really done any damage that I know of to my knees, but I've got a left knee right now that, Oh, I'm, I would not be surprised if I went in to see an orthopedist and got an MRI that he would just look at me aghast and ask, you know, how are you even walking on that? But uh, if it's not one thing, it's another, man. I'm I'm just muddling through. Yeah, I got to tell you, man, that's three minutes of your whining. It's time to move on. So, but uh, we hope you're doing well, man. <laughs> just take care of yourself. And, uh, you know, that's what it is, man. It's all about, right? But uh, that's, you know, that's the- why I'm a co-host of this podcast to get to get the sympathy I need from you and, and thank you for delivering in spades. Yeah. So, um, but, uh, pinnacle conference happened last uh, yeah. week, uh, down there in Arizona and our own international correspondent, Rob Lawrence was down there and did a great article for his EMS one stop. And I'm sure that you're going to be able to hear it on his podcast as well. Uh, if you've not read the article, please take time to read Rob's words his wisdom. And, uh, you know, he's always entertaining when he comes on the show as well as he's always entertaining when, uh, you know, he writes as well. He's kind of like you, Kelly, he's very, very entertaining with his uh, media that he shares. But anyway, uh, one of your friends, uh, and mentors, Brian Bledsoe had a great uh, presentation and the title of that was EMS must be fixed with a bulldozer and not a tweezer. For those of you who don't know Brian Bledsoe, he is the author of countless 
EMS publications that we use in our classes. Uh, he is a uh, ER physician. He was the actually he was an EMT. He was a paramedic. He was an EMS instructor at MedStar in Fort Worth, Texas. And then he became a uh, doctor and was actually the EMS medical director of MedStar for a while. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he's kind of one of those. Um, he's kind of one of the fabrics of EMS when you talk about it. Yeah. But a-, a la Kelly Grayson, uh, Dr. Bledsoe is someone that talks about the dogma of EMS and the things that have to change. And, um, you know, Kelly, just a little bit about Dr. Bledsoe from your standpoint. You know, Brian and I have been friends for, for quite a long time, and uh, I, I'm not ashamed to say he was a, a mentor and helped me get started in, uh, you know, EMS advocacy. And, and it didn't start, his, but it didn't start that way. No, it actually didn't. I was on an online forum many years ago, and I, I knew Brian uh, socially just, just a little, um, wasn't, weren't really close friends with him. And I said something um, inappropriate in an online forum, something to the effect of, uh, practicing punitive ALS, uh, on a patient when I was a fairly new paramedic and he came down on me with both feet and he told me I was a disgrace to the profession. And if that's the way I thought about patients that, uh, it's time to get out now and, and find a rewarding career in the fast food service industry and so on and so forth. Uh, he really lit me, uh, lit me up and, uh, he was right. You know, I mean, he was right. I, I was this, uh, I don't have that attitude anymore. I didn't have it very bad then. I was just making a uh, off the cuff comment, but it's not the kind of thing that you joke about. And, and he put me in my place on that. Uh, but since then, you know, we've, I have, uh, he's gotten me my, my start in some conferences, put in a good word for me and got the ball rolling. And the thing I've always respected about Brian is he has been willing to say uncomfortable things about EMS that we don't want to hear, but we as a profession desperately need to hear. And as a result of, of challenging the dogma in, in EMS, um, he's, he's made some enemies, you know, some people just don't like him. Uh, but what is it? Uh, I forget which wise philosopher said, if you're not, a, if you're not making, a, if you're not pissing off people, you're not saying anything worthwhile. Um, and, and that's what he does. Uh, a lot of people think that Brian is just a crank, uh, but but he kind of got his marching orders and his mandate from from none other than Jim Page. Uh, and Jim's uh, uh, when Jim was still the editor in chief of Jim's Jim's magazine, you know, he he told Brian that you know we need someone who who will not be not afraid to to speak the truth out there and challenge some of the things that we do, uh, and and you're just the guy to do that. Um, so that's, you know, that's his, his take on EMS and it's not well received by a lot of people, but the difference is, is Brian can back up what he's saying with evidence and, and he's got evidence to, to, uh, to support his statements in this, uh, uh, ditching the dogma thing. Um, I, I so, tend to agree with him, man. So he took, he, he took seven points in this presentation yep. and I'm going to take a couple of these and get through them. And, and I want to go ahead. Uh, we'll kind of take them down again. If you haven't read Rob's uh, article, go ahead and check that out. But number one was the use of lights and sirens. And Dr. Bledsoe acknowledged that red lights and sirens are emotional issues. As a current uh, peer-reviewed mm-hmm. research, Dr. Jarvis outlined that there's really no evidence that lights and sirens really work. Now, I got to tell you, I mean, I'm going to take this side of it, that I think that lights and sirens 
may be necessary, and I, I don't know that I'm grounded to this, may be necessary in response, but I don't know that it's necessary in transport. But one of the things that we've got to think about, Kelly, is a lot of EMS agencies have uh, first responders from the fire department. And it really depends on your system. If you're more rural, you don't get them. If you're more urban, um, they've got a four minute response time to someone's house mm-hmm. where we have a, um, you know, eight minute response time for a priority one life threatening emergency uh, of 12 minutes for potential life threatening emergency. But your first responders usually get on scene first. And yeah. if I'm going to flip the coin to say that lights and sirens should be used in response, I'm going to say I don't think lights and sirens should be used in transport. I, I agree with you. You know, my, my metric for transporting a patient lights and sirens is, is pretty darn high. And, and the patient basically has to have a time-sensitive illness uh, where, where rapid intervention is necessary, B, hemodynamically unstable, and C, the stabilizing treatment is something that I cannot provide. If they meet all three of those criteria, okay, lights and sirens. But the rest of the time, no. I, I, I really am reluctant to even transport post-cardiac arrest patients, lights and sirens, unless we're, you know, a ways from the hospital, simply because I, if I've loaded them up into my truck, then that means that I have restored a pulse, spent enough time to, to make sure it's quality perfusion or as close to it as I can get, and that the, the, the time crunch or the, the time sensitivity has gone down a little bit. Um, and a smooth ride and a safe ride is better than a fast ride. And that's the case in, in just about everything. Uh, I'm not so sure that it makes that big of a difference even in response. In, in rural areas, yes, you do save, uh, you do save some, some significant minutes in response times by using lights and sirens and expe- exceeding the speed limit. But in an urban area, the uh, urban environment, the, the difference between RLS and non-RLS response is minimal. You're, you're talking seconds, uh, maybe as much as a minute, but not that much. Uh, and, and we don't know that that minute saved is actually clinically beneficial. And he is dead on with the the only proven response time standard is uh, uh, CPR and defibrillation within four minutes of a cardiac arrest. Uh, other than that, we don't we don't even know if a cable uh, cable man response time is is uh, is not good enough. You know, sometime next Tuesday between the hours of noon and five p.m. Uh, he, he's dead on there. Um, that challenges a bunch of people who think that the the lights and sirens and the adrenaline rush is still worth it. Uh, But it doesn't make his, his evidence that he cites anything less compelling. Yeah. And I think with that, uh, I'm with you and my gauge for running lights and sirens is a little bit simpler than yours. Is there anything that I can't do in the ambulance that they can do in the ER that's going to make a difference? So that's how no, I, no, I put you, that. You just rephrased what I did. Exactly. You, know, you just, just rephrased what up, I said. Yeah. 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 I mean, just for a little simpler terms. But uh, the, another okay. one. If, Brevity is a soul of wit, Mr. Will Rogers. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, Mark Twain. But um, one of the things that uh, he talks about as well is ALS first response. And mm-hmm. this kind of goes into what we're talking about, about the ALS response time. And, you know, he kind of went and had a discussion that, uh, you know, ALS first response is contrary to the prevailing science and is prom- uh, basically promoted by response time compliance. 
And but I got to tell you, man, yeah. I, I think that ALS first response really is um, something that we've got to be able to think about. And I know a lot of EMS agencies right now that are playing with the BLS response uh, because of, um, you know, being able to hire paramedics. And one of the things that we think about, there was a great article that I was reading yesterday that was talking about uh, EMTs being able to do um, IGELs and LMAs and mm-hmm. things to that effect. And Kelly, you mentioned in our show, our previous show, that your state allows the EMTs to um, act like EMTs and not like ambulance mm-hmm. drivers. And one of the things that I think we need to start to think about is, do we need to have a paramedic on every single truck uh, in in a time when we can train EMTs to do a lot more that they're capable of doing that people or that systems don't allow them to do. This is where the EMS systems have gotten in trouble when they have gone through RFP process and said, I'm going to put a paramedic on every single truck or two paramedics on every single truck. Does it need to be this way in this day? I'm going to say no. I'm not going to disagree with you at all. Uh, I think we, um, and I've written about this myself back in 2017, I, I wrote an article called uh, uh, Reinventing EMS with the BLS Intercept. Hang on, hang on one second. Hang on one second. Mm-hmm. Do you know the exact years you write every single article? No, uh, I don't. Because you, you say that all well, the time. I wrote an article how back in 2019. Here's, I wrote an article. Yeah, but here's how it, how it came about. I looked up that article just this morning because I'm currently arguing with some people okay, good. who, all right, who all right. took I issue you with Bledsoe's assertions. You know, they're like, oh, this guy's anti-ALS, and he just thinks we should just drive everybody to the hospital real fast, and that's all. All right, then. And I was I like, did you, you. Even read, <laughs> did you even read his, 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 uh, what, he, what he was talking about? Because that's not what he says. But he is, I, I happen to think that he's dead on right, that we have too much EMS, not too little. We have, what we have is not so much a staffing problem, uh, we have a resource allocation problem. If you go to any major city, you can throw a rock at any compass point and hit a major hospital with, with plenty of capabilities. Yet those major cities are staffed with ALS ambulances. Some of them even insist on staffing them with dual paramedic ALS ambulances. And the, the outlying communities in the rural areas have to make do with, with BLS, uh, EMTs, and, and, and even volunteers uh, presumably in situations and transport times where ALS might potentially be of greater benefit. We have all our people concentrated in the wrong places. And what I, what I proposed was that we do away with the ALS intercept for, for those outlying communities. And we, we do a BLS intercept, do a tiered response system in the city with a bunch of BLS ambulances and a small cadre of ALS uh, equipped ambulances and paramedics, uh, and they handle only the ALS calls like Boston does, for example. Um, And on a regular basis, let's say every third or fourth week, you rotate out to the community paramedicine uh, clinic in a rural area, and they practice community paramedicine, mobile integrated health, and and make rounds and so on and so forth. And if the local ambulance if they, they have a call, they respond. And if the patient needs ALS care on the way to the hospital, well, they go. But if not, they call a BLS truck from the city, hand them off to the BLS providers and let them take them on into the city. 
And I think that would be a much better allocation of our resources. Uh, frankly, dude, I mean, the, the evidence pile is piling up. We don't have a whole lot of evidence on the efficacy of ALS procedures pre-hospital. We have a, a few, but by and large, um, we're, we're still back to, uh, we, you know, we'd like to think that we do some good, but we don't have a whole lot of evidence to support it. All right. Well, we've got a couple more points we want to bring up about Dr. Yeah. Bledsoe's presentation. But before that, Kelly, let's go ahead and give us the mid-show read. Gladly. Whether community paramedicine or the routine transport, from COVID-19 to STEMI to behavioral health, from the scene of a car crash in your city to a patient's living room in rural Montana, Pulsara connects you in real time with any member of the care team. Pulsara makes communicating across organizations and regions easy for any patient type. Simply create a dedicated patient channel, build your team, and communicate in a way that's best for your team and the patient case. For more information, visit pulsara.com slash EMS. That's P-U-L-S-A-R-A dot com slash EMS. I just, I got to tell you, man, I, I, I like the way you do that. And I would like you maybe to read a bedtime story to the listeners one day. So uh, I think that that's <laughs> uh, very interesting. One of the other things, you know, so we're talking about the presentation that Brian Bledsoe had at the Pinnacle Conference, and he talked about uh, medical helicopters and that medical helicopters may not be necessary. And they don't see that there's any proof that medical helicopters work. One of the things that was interesting that Rob puts in his article is that there are over a thousand medical helicopters operating in the United States, and most are owned and operated mm -hmm. by private equity companies, right? So they're, they're looking yep. at this for money making. And when we think about uh, the uh, requirements for compliance of medical helicopters, some of these people are getting 25, 26, $30,000 bills for uh, mm -hmm. uh, care that they, they may not need. And uh, it was interesting that he acknowledges that, uh, you know, in, in this uh, process, that legislation is trying to be written uh, to decline, mm -hmm. um, you know, to, to ensure that these bills aren't getting out of hand. But is yeah. there really a need for medical helicopters, number one? Uh, number two is we don't need to be paying these big bills. I got to, I have gotten into arguments on scene with fire chiefs who have launched helicopters. And I've went up to them and said, my people can take this down uh, to a hospital in a reasonable mm -hmm. amount of time, chief. We certainly don't need to get a helicopter. And it seems that it's more ego than it is utilization. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think uh, a whole bunch of, of medical helicopters are called, uh, as a symptom of uh, uh, first responder rotoriasis rather than medical necessity. Uh, and and Brian is spot on. You know, he takes an unfair rap against uh, unfair rap uh, as being anti-medical helicopter. Uh, and, you know, when, when flight medics go to bed at night, they, they check under their bed for Brian Bledsoe because he's, he's a boogeyman. Um, but, you know, <laughs> once again, he makes good points. I don't think Brian is so much anti-helicopter, and, and I know this because we, we've discussed this very thing in direct conversations with, uh, together, um, but the way they are utilized is, by and large, inappropriate. Uh, they would probably be of greatest benefit in rural and remote settings where transport time and response is, is delayed. You don't find them clustered there. 
you find them clustered in urban centers uh, where there is higher call volume. It's just, you know, uh, we're not utilizing them appropriately. I do believe that there is a place for a helicopter EMS. And I do believe that additional capabilities and speed uh, of uh, medical helicopters uh, can potentially benefit patients. The question is, how many? What's the sweet spot? What's the sweet spot? Where do they need to be deployed? Uh, how many is, is uh, enough and how many is too much? Uh, I've got a good friend that used to be a, a helicopter flight medic in, in Arizona, and he, you know, he said, you can walk, <laughs> you can, you can arrive on the scene and you have more helicopters than you have patients. And he's had several of those calls. Uh, so it, it, it's, uh, it's an overutilized resource that we need to, to, uh, um, scale back, uh, if for no other reason than it's safer, you know, the, with the spate of, of helicopter crashes and they happen every year, uh, it's far more dangerous to be a helicopter flight medic than it is to be a ground medic, despite uh, ground ambulances totaling millions and millions more miles than flight medics. Uh, the statistics are pretty damning there about the safety record of the industry. And I think we owe it to our flight medics not to call them for trivial stuff. Yeah, a lot of times, I mean, one of the things that uh, I, I looked at as an EMS leader was the utilization of air ambulances, especially around the time of shift change, which was very, very interesting. But let's go ahead and get to the next oh, yeah. one, Kelly. And this kind of went to um, what we talked about with ALS response, where uh, Brian is saying that there are too many paramedics. And, Indeed. Uh, and we go to what's going on in Seattle. And uh, Dr. Bledsoe's contention is that uh, EMS providers should be educated to the EMT level with expanded mm -hmm. skill set, such as analgesia, antiemetics, nebulized beta agonist, EpiPen, and glucose administration. Now, when we think about this from the standpoint of these particular skills, we would have to do a couple different things. They would have to know how to give injections. They would have to know how to... Um, uh, yeah, a little bit of pathophysiology, but I don't know that these things that we're talking about, analgesia, antiemetics, nebulized beta agonists, EpiPen, and glucose administration, which they already do anyway, uh, mm -hmm. if you think about the oral glucose, um, these aren't really skills that the paramedic needs to do. The chasm between current EMT level practice and what he proposes here is not that wide. In fact, it, we're right there anyway in some states. My state allows our EMTs to, to administer oral medications, nebulize beta agonists, use an EpiPen, and give oral glucose. Folks, you can give oral glucose to an unconscious patient perfectly safely as long as you're not stupid about it. You know, as long as you don't squeeze an entire 12 and a half gram tube of oral glucose in the back of their throat, they're not going to aspirate. Um, if you add in something, uh, a non-invasive uh, uh, form of analgesia, like maybe actique lollipops, a fentanyl lollipop, or say uh, nitrous oxide, if we got Intonox, uh, a, a cheap and effective uh uh, alternative to the, the mixing tank system that's currently in the, uh, approved by the FDA in the United States. If we had like single tank Intonox uh, and self-administered uh, via mask, that would be an excellent analgesic for BLS uh, providers. Um, on Dancitron ODT trips, 
you know, someone's sick to their stomach, uh, put a, uh, on Dancitron, Zofran strip on their tongue, tell them to sniff an alcohol prep. It works. It works very, very well. Uh, and it's not that big a, a, a thing to learn how to do. Uh, yeah, I think we do have too many paramedics. People say we don't have a, we've got a major paramedic shortage and, and, and now, uh, especially with the increase in, in operational, uh, tempo and, and run volume with all the COVID stuff going on, that may be true. But I think that what's more true is, is we don't have a, a shortage of paramedics. We have a shortage of paramedics who are willing to work in horrible conditions for mediocre or bad pay. And if we broke up those two paramedic uh, ambulances and uh, and initiated tiered response systems and so on and so forth and, and allocated our personnel resources uh, more efficiently, we would be uh, much better off. It would be far better to have fewer paramedics and have them be the Navy SEALs of EMS and then the EMTs uh, handling the bulk of patient care. I uh I've agreed with him uh, on that, and we'll continue to do so. But, hey, that's what we think. That's what Brian Bledsoe thinks. We'd like to hear what you think. What are your opinions on his on his assertions in his uh, pinnacle talk, uh, redesigning EMS with bulldozers, not tweezers? We'd like to hear your thoughts on it at the show at ems1.com. And for myself and co-host Chris Sabalero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We're going to catch you guys next week. <laughs>